You're listening to an episode of the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 140th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you liked today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, I'm excited to change the conversation from education to mental health and choice theory with my friend and colleague, Michaela Dietrich. Michaela is a licensed professional counselor and certified alcohol and drug counselor in outpatient private practice in Pennsylvania. Michaela's background is working in a PA rehab and detox with individuals and families. Michaela serves as an executive board member for the National Alliance on Mental Illness of North Central PA and volunteers on several committees, including suicide prevention, marketing and education, parent caregiver support group, and faith-based support groups. Michaela also chairs her graduate school's online alumni and mentorship committees. She received a trauma-informed care certification from Drexel University. She has led yoga groups addressing sexual trauma and anxiety. Michaela has presented at various conferences, provided paid webinars, and led workshops on authentic sexuality after sexual trauma, anxiety yoga, addressing the opioid epidemic, suicide prevention, trauma-informed care, and mental health considerations for faith communities. She served as a subject matter expert for the International Certification and Reciprocity Consortium, Pennsylvania Credentialing Board. And Michaela also volunteers with many local organizations to facilitate support groups, raise funds for nonprofit services, and address barriers to treatment. She also enjoys using social media, especially TikTok, where she has millions of views to spread mental health education, awareness, and encouragement to highlight parts of mental health and wellness that people often wonder, was I supposed to know this? I can just attest to the fact that I've seen her TikTok videos and they're really, really great. And Michaela, I'm so glad you were able to join us today. I know you have a million things going on just from reading your bio and you made time to talk with us today. So thanks so much for that. Of course. And my TikToks are supposed to be for people that I don't know. The people that I know, you're not supposed to watch me. It's not for you. It's too hard. Honestly, I don't go on TikTok, so I must have seen them on Instagram or something, but I have seen them. You did a few on Christian counseling that I caught that I thought were really adorable. So thanks. it's brave. I don't, I say (laughs) I'm never going to do TikTok. It's very millennial of me. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's awesome. So what do you think people generally misunderstand about mental health? When it comes to mental health, so often we get really good at identifying things on paper. And then when it's something that's happening in our lives, disrupting our everyday routine, we tend to kind of feel like we don't know what's actually going on. And even though we can identify step by step what something is supposed to look like logically or diagnostically what the characteristics are, we really fail to realize what anxiety, depression, mood disorders, even traumatic grief, what that looks like when it really shows up. And so often I work with people who will come to counseling or therapy and they'll say, I'm not really sure what's going on, but I'm not sleeping well. I'm really not motivated at work. I really feel like I am failing at a lot of different things. I'm not showing up for the people that I want to show up with. And they list out all of these disruptions that are happening in their lives. And I get to sit back a little bit and direct them to, it sounds like some very common characteristics of depression, just for this instance, where 
we see hallmarks of uh, depression with hopelessness and worthlessness and people go, oh my gosh, yeah, that does sound like hopelessness or that does sound like, you know, feeling worthless. This does sound like anxiety, but no, I'm just, I'm on edge. I'm unsettled. And we go, well, that sounds like anxiety. So like I said, on paper, what it's supposed to look like, but when it shows up and it starts to mix up our world and we feel unsettled and we feel uncertain, we feel not like ourselves, but we can't pinpoint what it is. Seeing what that looks like in our lives and seeing what mental health disruptions really are. To see anxiety, to see depression, you know, so often we hear people say things like, oh, I've been really depressed lately. And what they mean is I've been sad. People say I've been really anxious lately. And really they're just, you know, nervous or anxious for something, looking forward to something maybe. But seeing what that disruption really looks like when it comes to mental illness on that spectrum of illness to wellness, what each of those markers really truly looks like. How much do you think that is affected by the stigma people feel when they get a mental health diagnosis? I use the word stigma so often, and I find even that can be overused, but misunderstood in a way where I could say to somebody else so easily, like, oh gosh, this is what's happening. You really need to give yourself some space. You should get this looked at. You should get some help. But for ourselves, we don't recognize I'm having you know, a depressive episode right now, or I'm feeling really anxious or panicked about something, we go, what the heck is wrong with me? I know my potential and something's kind of like holding me back. And we don't automatically go to, you know, whatever mental illness might show up, whether it's something that we have diagnosed or something that we consider non-clinical where we haven't really encountered it before on some level. But, but especially with stigma, it's so interesting because we might notice it in other people We're not very good at noticing it with ourselves, or we're especially critical with ourselves. And if people are critical with other people, usually that can be a projection too of their own fears or worries. But when it comes to stigma, especially like, what is the right answer here? If you're moving through something very quickly, people are like, whoa, whoa, you need to stop and take a break and address this. But if you don't address it, that's also a bad thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. It's There's something wrong either way you look at it. Do you think that that would be a problem that's specifically challenging for counselors when they're going through something to recognize it in themselves? I have seen, so working in drug and alcohol especially, folks love to ask if I was in recovery from addiction. I went through Oh gosh, I was baptized by fire trying to figure out how to answer that question for people because I didn't want to be elusive. I absolutely did not want to lie, but I'm I'm not in recovery. I've never struggled with drug or alcohol addiction. And to work with people in active addiction going through recovery and treatment, people really wanted to know, you can't help me unless you know what I've been through. And I was, I mean, that was a really hard struggle working in inpatient detox and rehab and now working in mental health outpatient for mental health. Oh, people hate that question. They don't want to ask me. And, you know, sometimes people do like, oh, have you ever experienced something like this? You know, have you ever had a lot of panic or have you ever been depressed? Do you have mood swings like this? But they don't want that answer. (laughs) People are terrified if I were to say, oh gosh, yes, my postpartum or yes, you know, I I actually personally, I was not diagnosed until 30 years old with ADHD. And when I went to the doctors, um, he, he, he didn't laugh, but we both kind of laughed afterwards. I had said, I just need something different for anxiety. It's not cutting it. I can't think straight. I'm all over the place. 
especially, uh, gosh, I don't know how I made it through grad school because I could not listen, actively listen to someone, look for patterns throughout our conversations, formulate my own thoughts because you have to respond in the moment. You also have to formulate where you're going with the conversation. And it took everything in me. I was exhausted all of the time. And I said, I think I'm just really anxious. I'm going to need something else to help me just kind of settle down. And he, he explained, and this was just my primary care doctor. I wasn't seeing a psychiatrist. He said, oh gosh, Michaela, I, I think you have ADHD. And I said, oh, that's hilarious. You know, I'm a therapist. I know what that looks like. I diagnose it all the time. I diagnose adults all the time. I think I would know what that looks like. And he, he said, well, let's take a look here. I explained my anxiety. I said, well, I need to address my anxiety. And he had explained, you know, your anxiety is a symptom of not being able to keep all of these things straight. The disorganization in your brain, everything's ping-ponging around and you can't think straight. And I said, well, I'll try it and I'll let you know, because I'm very open with my primary doctor if I'm not going to do something. I'd rather just tell him up front than come back in a few weeks and, you know, try to get through it. But uh, so I started medication and I started doing more specific behavior interventions for executive dysfunction and wouldn't, you know, it things cleared up quite a bit, but clients really, and not that I bring that up with clients, but when they've asked, so, you know, is this something you struggle with? People don't want to know that their therapist who is supposed to guide them through all of these things can't keep her head straight sometimes that I'm, I'm a little scattered. I lose Obviously, I lose my train of thought sometimes. Um, I joked with a friend recently. We were having a conversation and I said, oh, yeah, with ADHD, but I'm not the impulsive type whatsoever. And almost that same weekend, I had a package come in the mail. I had ordered a hot pink pair of Zara pants late at night. And I totally remember the instance. I totally remember it. And it at the time, it didn't seem impulsive. But looking back, I thought, what in the world? You saw some somebody on social media with these hot pink pants and you said, I wonder where you get those. And I went to Zara and I bought the pants. I love the pants. I'm keeping them. But I had just <laughs> joked with a friend. I said, oh, I'm not impulsive at all. And then those showed up. So I said, okay, well, I didn't, I'm not very good at recognizing it in myself until you know it pops up and oh, there it is. People don't want to hear that though. They don't want to hear, I'm also depressed. You know, I'm also really anxious. It scares people truly. They come to therapy for a sense of safety and grounding to know that, okay, the world is happening out there, but I'm okay, right, Michaela? Like, we're going to figure this out, how I'm going to be okay. But easing people into that conversation of, yes, I get panicked too. Um, we had a lot of local car accidents a lot of traumatic car accidents uh, where a few children had died, a few couples had died, a coworker had passed away, he and his wife. And so I was very gripped by that. And there was a time where I did not want to take my children out of the house in the car. I took them to school. But other than that, I thought, oh gosh, I can't throw my kids in the car just to run to the bank. That, you know, that just seems like it's asking for for tragedy or danger. I can't just take my kids out to do some grocery shopping. I'll wait and leave them at home. I'll keep them safe. And when I've talked with clients about those experiences, established clients where we have a relationship, there is an element of still being worried to hear that. Like if I, you're a therapist, if you're not okay and that stuff freaks you out or you get nervous, what kind of hope is there for me? Which is so interesting how juxtaposed that is to addiction where people feel so hopeful, where they go, oh gosh, you're in recovery. How did you do it? And 
an outpatient, it's quite a different story. It is crazy, the difference in those two situations. So, you know, some say we're still in it. Others will say we've just come out of it. But what kind of impact has the pandemic had for people who are looking for counseling or therapy? There are very long wait lists in the area. That's something that I feel a lot of personal frustration with as far as there being wait lists for therapy in the first place. And there's conversations that I've had with people to make sure that they get the appropriate care. They're not just sitting and waiting to see myself or a colleague. But I've also noticed a trend in therapy that the pandemic, the COVID deaths, the quarantines, it's caused a lot of strain and disruption for people with their families. And now those are the people that are seeking mental health treatment. And that's because something is wrong. These are people who maybe previously would be non-clinical anxiety or depression on that spectrum of wellness and illness. They lean more towards wellness. They have characteristics. They're not meeting full criteria. They may not previously have sought out treatment, but now people are presenting in counseling and therapy with mood disorders, anxiety, adjustment disorders. Nationally, this isn't just locally for me. Nationally, we've seen those rates increase. People are reporting more anxiety and depression across the board, but people aren't necessarily seeking therapy because of those specific issues. They're not saying I'm anxious, I'm depressed, I have mood swings. What's happening is they notice something's just wrong and they don't know what it is. So I'm getting a lot of intakes personally where people are reporting trouble sleeping, they're irritable, they have low energy, they're unhappy, they have low motivation. But when we explore this in therapy, we're just finding that there's a lot of difficulty in adapting to their life changes. So things aren't predictable right now. And it's not just from like, okay, I used to work in an office and now I work from home. This is from worrying about physical health, financial stability, the transportation trouble that came with it. And so people moving through that wellness and illness spectrum and recognizing, okay, well, you don't have to be zero or a hundred. You don't have to be, you know, mentally ill or you have, you know, full mental wellness. Instead of zero to a hundred, you can be, there's like one to 99 in there. Pick another number, let yourself move along that spectrum as you need to. And I've found that people recently have not been staying in therapy very long. At first I thought, oh gosh, I'm not very good at this. I'm not retaining clients for very long. You know, I expect to see people two to three months, maybe weekly or biweekly, because that's kind of the range of something mild, but you know, three or four sessions, people were doing really well. And they said, I, I'll call you when something comes up. And I realized, okay, this is something that prior to COVID, I would not have seen these people come to therapy. They would not have called their insurance and looked to see who they panel with or even paid out of pocket sometimes. But all of those disruptions just had such a domino effect and they really compacted for people. Well, I know it had a big effect. And also, To go back to the stigma piece, I think with all the focus on mental health during that time, there was much less stigma around seeking help. That could be one of the benefits of the pandemic. Do you find that people sometimes overlook those early steps in therapy where you build awareness and acknowledgement? Do they want to like skip over that? They rush. People rush right through the process. They want to skip through awareness, practicing acknowledgement. And a lot of that is because we want more action 
tasks. We tend to ask, okay, but like, what do I do? Right. I get it. But like, what do you want me to do? We say that to our partners. What do you want me to do about it? We get the problem, but we actually don't fully understand the problem. And, you know, questions like that, it really used to stress me out as a new therapist, especially working with addiction. People just wanted the playbook. They wanted to know. So everyone's telling me what the problem is. If you tell me how to fix it, I'll tell you if I really want to do that. And the awareness and the acknowledgement piece that comes with the beginning of understanding what's happening, it's so chronically overlooked. It feels so passive, but they're so foundational. They do so much work that we don't even recognize. When you practice recognizing what's happening, raising awareness for the distress, the uncomfortable emotions that present, it's like turning around and realizing that the large looming dread that you feel is really just a shadow. And maybe when you actually turn around, there's like, I don't know, a small acorn on the ground, but it was this huge giant shadow behind you. And actually when you turn around and you see the acorns small, it's not really frightening. It's much more manageable. You can actually pick it up. And I'm making this up. You can pick whatever object you want to put there. But the dark shadow is what's so overwhelming and terrifying, especially when your back is turned to it. So the start of what we do in therapy and with counseling is building that tolerance to distress, to feeling uncomfortable, to really looking at what is happening, the distress and the yucky feelings that come up, the guilt that hurts, the shame that likes to come up in our most vulnerable times, um, seeing the steps before something becomes so unmanageable and out of control. Anxiety, for instance, is usually starts out and presents as irritability. So we know that we don't have control over something or we have very little control. So a lot of times it agitates us. And that's a lot of the times before we even will feel anxious or panicked. But then we're trying to navigate anxiety and calm down our panic when what we can actually do is notice the rising frustration or the rising annoyance and have so much more of a better grasp. We're so much stronger and braver to face the outcomes of whatever situations we're facing. It's when we find that resilience and that tolerance and that stamina to turn and see what we're really dealing with. Yeah, I like that. Can we shift a little bit to the topic of grief and talk about some of the misconceptions that you hear related to grief? We are not good at grief. Mm. We are just, and I, everybody handles it so differently, but that becomes the excuse of it at the same time. Well, everybody deals with grief differently. If grief is prolonged, we freak out a little bit. Oh my gosh, what's wrong with me that I'm still going through this? If we get over something quickly or we move through it quickly, we go, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? (laughs) Why is this not bothering me enough? So we're, okay, again, win, win, lose, lose, what's happening? Grief, when we shift our view on that, the biggest misconceptions are that grief is some kind of pathology, but really grief is an amazingly designed adaptive process. It's not an input or output machine where you know, you move through it, you do, you do this or you do that, or something happens and now you've changed. It's an adaptive process that we have. We tend to assume that tragedy has to have this silver lining or that it provides a silver lining, but then we can start to feel unsettled that maybe this loss had to occur in order for something to happen that I'm grateful for. That works for some people. I would say that's just one point of view because I don't want to dig on silver linings. I think they're wonderful. But what that belief holds is that 
this loss or this tragedy had to happen so that I can have this to be thankful for. And what we have to do is reframe this into recognizing that death, tragic loss, they happen in this unpredictable and unfair world. And as you step through that journey in your life, you might notice the speed limit has slowed down at times, but while slowing down, you notice more of the view and things aren't really a blur anymore because you've slowed down and you can see the color sharpen into trees and there's a landscape. And so tragedy didn't have to happen in order for you to notice the landscape, the trees, or to feel more comfortable going through that season of your life. Slowing down is what created space for that, but you can appreciate refocusing on either beauty in your life, relationships, reprioritizing your values without tragedy. But sometimes we don't slow down until tragedy happens. So we put that correlation in place. Tragedy equals this thing that I'm grateful for. And we can find those things to be grateful for without tragedy. That's true, especially when you think about this is the month of Thanksgiving. So, you know, people are talking a lot about gratitude and it doesn't require tragedy to be grateful for things in our lives. We overlook so many types of loss that we think death is the only thing to be grieved when it comes to loss. And I think especially COVID and our pandemic has shown us that loss can be so ambiguous, that relationships work, so many different things, either like losing a job, your kids doing school from home is a loss, your loss of routine, your loss of things being more manageable or predictable. Those are things that we grieve that, and I recently just wrote an article about this for our local National Alliance on Mental Illness here in North Central PA, but I wrote about, is something really like wrong or is, are you grieving? Are you depressed or are you grieving right now? And giving space to recognize so often we grieve ambiguous loss in our lives, having to take a rental car instead of our usual, usual transportation is loss. And it's so disruptive, but we don't give space for that much of the time. Right. It's true. I know during the pandemic, my grief involved freedom of movement. I was grieving my ability to do the things that I normally would do. I felt like a prisoner in my own home. And so there was that grieving of freedom. So I know that it's not always a person that you grieve. Michaela, you mentioned to me something about gatekeeping and therapy. What does that really mean? Because I had not heard that term before. So gatekeeping, the general definition for that is withholding an insight that's specific to your community from other people. So it doesn't have to be secrets, but it's controlling information. So when it comes to therapy, this is especially why I like well, like and love and hate at the same time, social media, but these incredible platforms like your platform, especially it's an incredible way for people to access basic mental health and wellness information, psychoeducation without having to pay for a specific service or go to therapy themselves. So what I've used social media for, and I don't really want to talk about it because I don't want people to look for it. It's again, it's for people that I don't know. I wish I could be anonymous, <laughs> like hide behind something. It gets whatever. So it wouldn't be as effective. <laughs> first of all, I use it as a challenge to find my voice. I felt like I hid, I was very aloof from things. I like to kind of challenge things individually, but not so much in a group setting. I really, I've for a while have felt like I've had nothing to really say. And that was something that a few years ago, I really challenged myself to put out there and not have the thing to say, but say something 
and be a voice, use whatever gifts that I have to support others, support the things that I, well, that I'm passionate in and that I would like to advocate for. And when it comes to gatekeeping and therapy, I've used social media and other outlets to show people what happens in the therapy room. Why do people find therapy so helpful? Why is this so important? What does treatment really look like? What do relationships with a therapist look like? What are goals in therapy? What does mental health look like? And showing those pieces of information where people start to say, oh my gosh, like, was I supposed to know that about anxiety? And so often you'll see that if you scroll through social media, you'll see people say, oh, here's something you should know about whatever, how to dress for the fall or your upcoming holiday season. Using that information to bring awareness, bring more education to mental health and wellness. And not just these are the things that are helpful for you, but this is what to expect. People ask a lot of questions on social media that I I try to answer as much as I can. I don't always have the answers for people. So the questions that come up are, is this normal or what does this look like? I don't really know how to find a therapist or some of the funniest ones that I've found. I've found a community on social media that we kind of joke about, but um, is my therapist supposed to do this or do that? Um, What's okay? And how do you have certain conversations with your therapist? What if your therapist is a talker and you want them to just not talk as much? And I will Google a lot of articles, like I'll type in, I don't want to be with my husband anymore, just to see what pops up when I've had clients that maybe they're Googling things like that, or I'm unhappy. I need to find a friend. What comes up on Google and what are people reading that are the, you know, the wiki how-tos on mental health and wellness and relationships and building all these things in their lives with self-esteem and all of that, and trying to address some of that on different platforms. Um, And encouraging other creators who are, oh gosh, so incredibly talented and smart and they're writing their own books and they have their own curriculums and being a part of that community. So the gatekeeping aspect is, you know, don't, don't hide all of this for people to have to come to therapy to find out what this looks like. Give the tools and the skills, don't hide it in clinical books. Some of these really wonderful books I can't refer to clients. I can't recommend because they're like, well, I don't want to sit and read about the brain. It feels so far detached from what's really going on with me. It's what I really love about uh, Glasser when I learned choice theory. He wanted us to teach everybody choice theory. It's not just something for therapists to know and keep a secret and keep people coming to try to help them get better, but don't give them the tools they need to get better on their own. It's crazy. I'm really glad to hear what gatekeeping means. It's something I don't think I ever do. I'm trying to open the gates, not keep them closed. So I'm thankful to have that term. So thanks for that. Right. Because our job isn't to change people. It's to give them information. So I feel like Glasser has our mission, right? He does. He does. So Michaela, I hate to say this, but we are coming to the end of our time. So I want to give you the opportunity. If there's anything I didn't ask you that you would like to add now, you could do that. I think I'd like to take this opportunity to really address. Okay. So I'll do the opposite of gatekeeping. I want to share something that has been coming up so often in therapy with sessions with individuals, with whatever we've been talking about this so often comes up that we struggle and ping pong back and forth and we feel conflicted. What am I going to do? What am I supposed to do? Am I getting 
better? Am I doing okay? Am I not? What should I be doing? And we go back and forth and we feel pulled in all directions. But what happens is we think that acceptance and change with what's happening in our life are separate directions. We think we have to turn left or turn right. And really, they are side-by-side lanes on a highway, if you will. And one direction or one of those lanes can be acceptance and one of those lanes can be change. And you can coast and put on your blinker and go back and forth. You can't stay in one lane too long, right? Because one lane is, oh gosh, it's way too slow. You get stuck behind somebody. It's awful. So you have to kind of shift over and maybe you move from acceptance to change and you go down that lane. But sometimes there's debris in the road. I think it's illegal to drive in the passing lane for too long. At some point, you have to get back over. And when we stop pulling ourselves apart and slamming back and forth into the guardrails between, okay, this is my life and this I'm doing the best that I can with the information that I'm given. And then sometimes we swing and we slam back into the other side and we think, oh my gosh, I have so much potential. What the heck am I doing with myself? I need to get it together. And we just slam back and forth. And when we realize we can go the same direction and hold two beliefs at the same time that I'm doing the best that I can and I'd like to do some things differently, things go so much easier. And there's nothing about ourselves that wants to stay stuck. Sometimes we have this giant belief that, oh gosh, if I do this, I'm just going to be complacent and I'm going to stay stuck here and I'm going to just be okay with it. And there's no evidence for that. Just the fact that you care about not caring shows that you care to some extent. So we have to find a way to stop fighting with ourselves and coast along and put on your blinker, move back and forth, but you're going the right way. Beautiful. I love the analogy. It's something everybody can relate to. Do you have anything coming up you'd like to tell the audience about? Do you have a book that you're working on? Do you have a social media channel you'd like people to subscribe to? Are you doing any workshops, giving any talks? What's happening? I don't have too many things scheduled specifically. A lot of my schedule is for volunteering. So I do that on evenings and weekends. As I've mentioned a few different times, the phrase, was I supposed to know this? has come up so often in personal conversations and therapy sessions. And so that's something that I've been putting together to answer that kind of question and to really make sure that information is not kept from the world as far as what happens in therapy, the basics of mental health and wellness. So I'm putting some things together. I don't have a full timeline of publishing at all, but... Someday in the short, near future, you can look for something published on, was I supposed to know this? And have all kinds of mental health topics and any questions people might have on what to expect. I love, love, love that. And your subtitle could be something about blowing the gates off gatekeeping and mental health. (laughs) It has to happen. Yes. I love it. I love it. I love it. I really appreciate you joining us today, Michaela. I love talking with passionate counselors who are really making a difference in improving the mental health of our planet, one person at a time. It's so important and very needed. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kim. You're welcome. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be interviewing Dr. Terry Lynch about his book, The Depression Delusion. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. 
To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, remember to subscribe.